Hello and welcome to the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on September 24th, 2021 from my home studio here in Columbia. Just so you know, some of the information in this podcast may have changed by the time you've heard it. In this episode, we jump into redistricting with Lynn Teague of the League of Women Voters of South Carolina. We get an update on what the state house is doing this fall. State economists break down the massive tax revenue halls hitting state coffers, and we hear from the credible medical experts who testified before a Senate committee and have the latest for you on boosters. Additionally, we want to hear your stories, so we set up a voicemail box to hear from you all about your life during these times. Uncertain? Certain times. Leave us a one to three minute long voicemail at 803-563-7169. Leave us your name, where you're calling from, and what's going on in your world. Even though these are uncertain times, we certainly want to hear from you. Thank you, AT, for that in my ear. But let us know. You know, it's getting cool out there. I'm sure the sweaters are out. It's sweater weather. Let us know what you're up to. It's always cool in the lead. 803-563-7169. Give us a call. Now for the latest in South Carolina. Currently, the spread of COVID-19 is widespread, ongoing, and not contained, according to data from the Department of Health and Environmental Control. There have been 12,080 deaths total, and currently there are 841,600 total cases being reported in all 46 counties as of September 24th at 4 p.m. Yes, you heard me. There are more than 12,000 total deaths so far in our state. Our case rates are declining, but we're still seeing daily cases in the 3,000s. However, though, this week should be the third week of declines. Our current percent positive rate is 9.4%. Right now, 2,196 people are hospitalized with COVID, 533 are in intensive care, and 369 are in ventilators. All these numbers are down by 11%, 9%, and 16% respectively. And admissions are also down by 26%. While this sounds like encouraging news, the Washington Post notes that Spartanburg County has the highest hospitalization rate in the country, with 38 patients per 100 beds. So still a lot of work needs to be done here. There are currently 25 children hospitalized with COVID-19, 9 are in critical care, and 4 are on ventilators. All of them are unvaccinated. And as of right now, 51.2% of the eligible population in the state is fully vaccinated. That's moved up a half a percentage point from Monday. That's known as a big jump in these parts, folks. Okay, folks, it's a bill that we talked about for months, and this week it officially died. I'm talking about the police reform bill that Senators Tim Scott and Cory Booker were working on alongside California Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass. The Wall Street Journal broke the story on Wednesday after Booker called off talks after failing to reach a compromise. The New Jersey senator told the paper, quote, The goal from the very beginning was to get meaningful reforms that would end the policing problems we've had in this nation for generations. But in the end, we couldn't do it. If you just take some of those issues of transparency, professional standards, and accountability, we couldn't get there. Quote, Senator Scott, who pushed for his own reform package last summer in the immediate wake of the killing of George Floyd, only to have it stall, said this, quote, The areas where we agreed, banning chokeholds, limiting the transfer of military equipment, increased mental health resources, and more, would have brought justice to these families. I've also heard from police and sheriff's groups who support the work we were doing to provide more resources to implement better training, standards, and accountability for departments, quote. The Wall Street Journal said that even in the areas they agreed, draft language was still touchy, and the biggest sticking point was what to do with qualified immunity. That's the legal doctrine that shields police officers from lawsuits. 
Back to South Carolina, let's look at redistricting. That's right, when lines are redrawn for state house and senate districts, as well as our seven congressional districts every 10 years based upon the latest census figures. Over the past decade, the state has added a half a million new residents, mostly along the coast and in communities that border Charlotte, where some places along the I-95 corridor and other rural areas have not grown and even lost population, like 24 counties have. So, district maps need to be redrawn to equally represent those updated populations. The House Ad Hoc Committee is wrapping up its meetings across the state this week, and you can find out where they will be at sc.statehouse.gov. The Senate Redistricting Subcommittee finished holding 10 meetings across the state and met last week where it adopted guidelines it will use when crafting its maps for the 46 Senate districts. You can find all the redistricting information you want via links right on the homepage of sc.statehouse.gov. But to dive deeper and look at some potential changes, we spoke with Lynn Teague. She's Vice President of Issues in Action, the nonpartisan League of Women Voters of South Carolina. We spoke on This Week in South Carolina, and she started by giving this overview. Um, the individual legislators working with map drawers, uh, both houses have hired specialists, legal specialists and technical specialists. Um, everybody uses Maptitude, which is a piece of software that the league also uses to draw our own maps. Um, but the legislators meet individually with the map teams generally to look at their own districts. And I will just say that, you know, we, we had hoped for an independent process because legislators' self-interest is deeply, deeply embedded in how this process goes. And it's very hard to put self-interest totally aside and say, what's best for voters? And there is an inclination for incumbents to think of the districts as their districts, not the voters' districts. And that's on both sides of the aisle, of course, but obviously Republican-controlled Senate and House, though, but still... Everyone has their vested interests, like you're saying. Well, it actually is probably the most bipartisan thing that happens usually <laughs> in the General Assembly. <laughs> Interesting. Everybody, you know, as one legislator put it to me, every man for himself. Mm -hmm. But that is, in fact, our concern. Um, you know, the, the league tries to do our homework. And as part of that, uh, one of our board members is, in fact, a math professor at Clemson, and he oversaw a master's thesis on are our districts gerrymandered now for partisan advantage? Because everybody, you know, a lot of people think they are. Mm -hmm. um, and after millions of simulations being run on a supercomputer, we found they're not. Huh. There is at present no uh, artificial partisan gerrymander. There is a partisan bias, and it can be attributed mostly to the distribution of population because parts of the population are differently distributed in the state. Some big U.S. Supreme Court decisions recently in the past 10 years that, have, that will affect how these maps are drawn and how they get approved. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, the Voting Rights Act was central to uh, a lot of these maps being drawn over the years since the 60s. Uh, obviously, a big decision in 2013 was removing pre-approval by the Department of Justice for states that had a history with racial discrimination in voting to get federal approval, uh, South Carolina being one of them. That's no longer going to be an issue. How concerned is the league about that being removed and how that's going to affect this process? We are, we are concerned. Uh, lacking pre-clearance now means that elections, you have to come in after the fact if there's a problem. Mm -hmm. You have to wait till the lines are drawn. The pre-clearance process, we believe, should have been retained. We wish it would be restored. While we don't see a lot of artificial partisan gerrymander at present in South Carolina, that doesn't mean it can't be done. Mm -hmm. It certainly can be done. And without preclearance, that danger is greater. 
And Lynn, when we talk about unpacking the 6th Congressional District, uh, what kind of ramifications will that have for the surrounding districts? You know, it's the only, it's only Democratic district in the state. Obviously, the 1st Congressional District uh, is very close. It's been very competitive, at least in 2018-2020, uh, with Joe Cunningham flipping that long-held Republican seat in 2018, but then Nancy Mace getting it back in 2020. Sounds like there could be ramifications since the 6th and the 1st are right next to each other in terms of how this could play out in the future, if there is a lawsuit based on this. Um, yes, the, actually, it's interesting that the first and the six are each currently off by almost exactly the same percentage of population. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first has about 11 point something percent too much. The six has 11 point something percent too little. But if they were to try, I don't believe that the impact on surrounding districts will be to create a second uh, voting rights district, a majority minority district. I don't think that's going to happen anywhere, but who knows. But when it will certainly lead to a better voice for those minorities if their voice isn't diluted by being packed into one district. Mm -hmm. They should be able to both elect someone of their choice and influence legislation in the adjoining districts if that's where they're appropriately placed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because right now you would think that, you know, before any lawsuit happens, that the first congressional district is a place where Republicans would at least want to maybe shore it up and make it a stronger Republican district just based on what we saw in 2018 and 2020. Yeah, right. Um, I think both parties are going to take a huge interest in how the imbalance between six and one is, is resolved. As always, you can catch Twisk on Friday nights at 7.30 p.m. and Sundays at 1.30 p.m. on SCETV. But since you may be watching football during those times, you can always find us on youtube.com slash South Carolina ETV. And on the way out here, the South Carolina House will not return for a special session ahead of the start of next year's session in January. And now the Senate has canceled plans to come back on October 12th, saying that its Judiciary Committee will not be ready for the redistricting debate. Senate President Harvey Peeler said there was no pressing need to take up the American Rescue Plan Act monies and the Savannah Riverside settlement monies and have the bills languish in the House until January. House Majority Leader Gary Simrel, however, told news outlets this week that the chamber would be back in December to approve new district maps. We'll be there. We'll be there. Money, 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 money. I think I sang that correctly. I think that's how the song goes. Well, we're talking about the gravy train with biscuit wheels. That is state tax revenue as it continues to roll. Well, that's not exactly what the Board of Economic Advisors were told. Eh, But we did hear a lot of the words like phenomenal and exceptional mentioned a few times during their meeting on Thursday, where they got to see how the last fiscal year wrapped up and how the first few months of the current year, which started July 1st, are shaping up. Hint, good. (laughs) While the increase in revenue is great news and shows that the federal injection of cash is still providing a sugar high for the state's economy, economists are still trying to figure out what our actual growth looks like, especially since year-over-year numbers are so skewed since the downturn and immediate recovery scrambled so many indicators they use to predict trends. However, things are still looking good. 
Ben Coomer with the State Revenue and Fiscal Affairs Office said total earnings have risen in the state and average hourly earnings have risen as well in stunning fashion due to the loss of workers leading to higher wages to maintain and recruit folks. Tax season was better than expected, with individual income taxes generating some $473 million more in revenues than expected. This helped generate a $1 billion surplus for the past fiscal year. Here's Ben Coomer with the RFA. So this touches on one of the main questions we have for non-withholdings, uh, is the growth we've experienced over the course of the pandemic sustainable? And as of now, the answer is not entirely clear. Uh, we cannot with great certainty predict where the financial markets will move in the coming years um, after this period of successive record-breaking index levels. However, even though the value of financial instruments may not grow at this pace in the near future, we've seen a jump in household participation in investment activities during the pandemic uh, for a variety of reasons. If household appetites for investment see a permanent change, and if some portion of the increase in self-employment and business applications endures, uh, then this expanded base of non-withholdings may stick in the future. Now, of course, the Fed's tapering decision um, is looming all over this. Uh, business startups and expansions may ebb as a result of uh, as interest rates rise. Volatility may increase in the stock and bond markets and so on. Hopefully, whatever decision is made uh, won't cause too much of a shock. Tapering will be gradual and well, communi- uh, well communicated enough for businesses and individuals to begin pricing that into their financial decisions. Uh, and as of yesterday's Fed conference, that's looking like a process that begins in November and ends in the middle of next year. Sales tax collections are also at an all-time high as well, being fueled by durable good purchases. Those are high-dollar, long-lasting items like your refrigerator or your washing machine, those kinds of things. Savings rates also remain high, and consumers have less debt. Nally Gallagher with RFA has a look at those sales of durable goods and what can be projected into the future. The growth really stagnated, and this is orders for cars, appliances, and other durable goods which decreased as manufacturers continue to grapple grapple with shortages in parts and labor, as well as confront higher material costs. So this doesn't seem to be pointing to a slow up in consumer spending or an inherent change to more historical spending patterns. We anticipate that this is a response to supply chain issues. FY21 might not be an appropriate base year, and that's due to the exceptionally high growth rates that we saw that were driven by stimulus and non-permanent changes to consumer behavior. These may be bleeding over into this fiscal year, and we may continue to see some high growth throughout this calendar year. We still anticipate that this growth will subside next spring, and a big part of that is because of just how much stimulus was pushed into the economy. However, we are very likely to see higher growth than we had anticipated. Because we got so much revenue in the last quarter of last fiscal year, our growth rate changed to negative 10.6%. So should the decision be to adjust this um, this estimate, we do have a lot of room to work with. If you thought I was done with talking about where we were seeing growth, well, get ready, folks, because economists say saw plenty of growth in housing. We all know that, though, if you've been trying to sell a house or buy one. Deed recording fees have jumped 95%. These fees are based off of the assessed value of the house at the time of sale. Now, this also coincides with the rise of median house prices to an all-time high, due to demand not being able to keep up with supply, which is another thing that could be affected by rising interest rates in the future. We'll talk about that on Tuesday. So all very fascinating indicators when we get to hear from our state economists about what is happening directly in our economy. Frank Rainwater is the executive director of the Revenue and Fiscal Affairs Office and said there are still some unknowns when it comes to the future and how sustainable trends will be, which will make it a little tricky for lawmakers when it comes time to budget. Here's Rainwater. So where are we with our forecast outlook for 22? We have, as I mentioned earlier, it's a little bit more challenging. Uh, in the past, we can generally have a solid base and we could 
some will look at a percentage change and say, well, we 1%, 2%, 3%, whatever. Um, we have a lot more challenges uh, because of the surpluses last year and the stimulus. Uh, we have to look a little bit deeper and cannot rely just on the, the final result of a percent change here in the estimates. So we're worried about the direction. Will revenue be higher or lower or sustained and then the magnitude of that? But to summarize, we think withholding income uh, is likely to exceed the estimate. We feel more comfortable about being able to raise that estimate. Uh, Non-withholding, maybe, but it's been noted uh, when you look over a two-year cycle, um, taking out kind of just taking out the stimulus impact, our estimate from a two-year standpoint may look looks pretty good. We may not want to change that as much. Um, sales tax is going to be above the forecast, uh, especially for these upcoming six months. But will ex but will it exceed next year's estimate? Is still the ch is still the uh, still the key. Uh, corporate is likely to be above our forecast as long as retail sales are up. That's just something. We uh, we'll watch over the next two months. Now let's shift to the world of business. Bob Morgan is the president and CEO of the South Carolina Chamber of Commerce, and his organization released findings of a business survey this week that found a majority of South Carolina businesses are opposed to the proposed OSHA vaccine mandate for companies with more than 100 employees. Businesses said they are determined to avoid another shutdown of the economy and are taking a variety of steps to fight the virus, including some who are mandating vaccines and others who are encouraging and incentivizing their employees to get vaccinated. The survey found that 49% of businesses are currently requiring vaccines for employees or are considering requiring vaccines in the future. 51% are not requiring vaccines and do not plan to require vaccines in the future. Now, DHEC is currently awaiting additional federal guidance on how the federal vaccine or testing mandate will be enforced for those businesses with over 100 employees. It's worth noting that half the respondents represented businesses with less than 100 employees, and the remaining respondents were split between businesses with 100 to 500 and 500 or more employees. The state newspaper reports that ivermectin calls to the poison control hotline have increased to seven from just one in each of the two preceding months. Whoa now, South Carolina. Whoa, easy Nelly. Ivermectin, whose inventors won the 2015 Nobel Prize in Medicine, was a big part of a five-hour-long Senate Medical Affairs subcommittee hearing that took testimony from credible and non-credible witnesses alike. Obviously, we're not going to share the perspectives of a doctor who associates with one university hospital in Texas since he's currently under a temporary restraining order for claiming he still practices there, which he did while giving testimony on the benefits of ivermectin and other drugs that the FDA said has not been studied thoroughly enough to be recommended as a COVID treatment despite wild claims and shoddy trials. However, there are credible studies now underway, but again, no data from those yet. Some other doctors made claims, with no evidence, that hospitals were prohibiting their doctors from using or prescribing ivermectin. That's that dewormer that studies, again, show isn't safe at the high doses needed to make any potential impact against COVID. Dr. Ann Andrews, who is a credible doctor and pediatrician at MUSC and spent years studying to be a doctor, put it this way when wrapping up her remarks and speaking to subcommittee chairman Senator Shane Martin, who is a Republican from Spartanburg. 
The injection of politics into the pandemic response, as was just mentioned, has been detrimental to the health of too many South Carolinians. So I urge you to separate issues related to politics from the expert advice you're going to receive today. Let's shift our focus back to doing everything in our power to stop the spread of COVID. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Dr. Anders, I have, a, I have a question for you. My question is, if a, if a doctor just prescribes one of those therapeutics that has been mentioned here in this committee, um, should that professional decision be able to be made without interruption? So I can speak to my own experience, which is that I'm prescribing things that have been recommended by the evidence and things that are evidence-based. And so it has never been my experience as a physician that something, some treatment that I deem necessary for a patient that I am not allowed to prescribe that in any way. There has never been that sort of interference in my practice. But you wouldn't want that for any other physician in another area, say Orangeburg or Spartanburg. If, they're, if in their expertise they recommended one of the therapeutics that have been mentioned here, you wouldn't begrudge that doctor for using their expertise to recommend that. So I'm not going to speak about hypotheticals and begrudging specific physicians, but I will say that, you know, as I mentioned in my background, I, I'm very proud to practice evidence-based medicine, and I let the evidence guide the decisions I make. And if that's what the physicians are doing and they're using the evidence to inform their clinical decisions, then, yes, it should be up to the physician to make those decisions. The committee heard from other top medical professionals in the state, from hospitals to licensing boards, and DHEC Director Dr. Edward Simmer who told Senator Tom Corbin, a Republican from Traveler's Rest, why the research he's looking at, and some that was presented earlier, is different from what Simmer is reading. And this here, folks, you want to listen to this as a key argument that continues to play out these days when discussing ivermectin. So let me be clear. So okay. ivermectin is on the list of medications that you're dissuading from use? What our website says is that there is that ivermectin is not an evidence-based treatment. The evidence does not support its use. We don't dissuade people from using it. Mm -hmm. We simply say what that the evidence... What about this evidence that I presented earlier from these studies? What about those doctors presented this evidence from all over the world? Is that not good enough for you? What kind of evidence do you need? We need reliable evidence from well-done studies. Um, the one that you mentioned... Well, the doctors, other doctors would argue these are well-done studies. And I would disagree with them, sir. And I will tell you why. Based on, based on what? based on the quality of the studies that have been done, based on the fact there have been a number of studies that have shown that ivermectin is not effective. Um, there was a study, just uh, a review of the studies just recently in the Clinical uh, Infectious Disease Journal. Uh, they did a review of a number of articles, research studies about uh, ivermectin, and they found, their, their finding was that the overall body of evidence does not support the use of ivermectin, does not show that it's effective. There are, some there are some small studies that say that it may have a small beneficial effect. There are other studies that say that it does not. I think the best answer we have right now is we don't know for sure. The current evidence does not support its use, and that is what we say. So, However, which, so which study are you citing now? From what, from what journal? Uh, clinical Infectious Disease. And, that, and that's just a standalone journal? That doesn't fall under something like uh, The Lancet or something like that? I'm not sure who owns that journal exactly, but it is an independent journal, yes. Despite all the back and forth of the five-hour hearing, which was the second to gather testimony on therapeutics to fight the pandemic, the first being a public input session of people making claims about the benefits of certain drugs in fighting the virus, Dr. Ann Cook, an internal medicine physician and president of the State Board of Medical Examiners, made a very illustrative point. If you take 100 patients with COVID, think, just try to think through this with me. If you take 100 patients with COVID, 80% of them are going to do just fine. 
a lot of them get real sick at home. They're going to feel like they've had the worst flu they've ever had, and they're going to think they're dying, but their oxygen levels don't drop, and over time, they begin to get better. A certain percentage do not. One to two percent of people die. And even with, even with our, um, you know, working as hard as we can in the hospital setting, the folks who get to us in the hospital are in that, that group of folks who are, many of them, not going to do well. But if 85 of those 100 people who get COVID are going to do okay anyway, then I can tell them, here, take this chocolate bar. I give those 100 people a chocolate bar, and 85, 85 of them are going to think that chocolate bar made their COVID better. Those are the kinds of numbers we're dealing with when we're trying to figure out what works to improve the care of COVID patients. So it's not that one person's lying to you here and another person is trying to make money off of other medicine. It's that we're trying to get the science right. And that's not always easy to do. If I told you we had a drug that 70% of the time would prevent COVID and almost always prevent death from COVID unless you had other underlying conditions, I think we'd jump all over that, wouldn't we? That's what the vaccine is. Well, that all sounds better than a chocolate bar, but I kind of want a chocolate bar right now. And we have some more booster news for you folks. I know you've been hearing a lot about it this week. There's a lot going on, so here's a good summary for you. The Food and Drug Administration authorized a third dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine on Wednesday for emergency use in people 65 and older, as well as those 18 and older, who are at high risk of exposure to the virus based on where they work, as well as other individuals 18 to 49 with underlying medical conditions. The CDC approved the same recommendations early Friday morning, despite the agency's independent vaccine advisors on the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices saying boosters weren't necessary for those in high-risk situations. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who was over the CDC, overruled that recommendation and has given the green light for those specific reasons a person can receive a Pfizer booster. There will be more news about when you can get a Pfizer booster if you qualify, and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson boosters will be addressed by the agencies once more data is available. But again, Moderna folks don't feel left out. Several studies have found that the Moderna vaccine offers longer-lasting protection compared to Pfizer's and Johnson & Johnson. Remember, we mentioned one such study in a previous episode. And our Johnson & Johnson peeps. The company said on Tuesday that giving people a second shot two months after the first one boosted protection against moderate to severe disease from about 75% to as much as 100%. Good numbers right there. In addition, the company said waiting to give that second shot until six months after the first shot boosts antibody levels even more than giving it after the two months. We're talking about a 12-fold versus a four to six-fold increase. The results suggest that waiting longer for that second shot provides stronger protection. That data has been submitted to the FDA. Welcome to the wind down section, our little break from the news. Mm -mm -mm -mm. We talk about life during the pandemic and want to hear your stories as well. Let us know how you're handling the pandemic, how fall's going, what you're doing, what you're baking, what you're wearing. Sweater weather, like I said, we need to know. I need to know the tips and the tricks for fall. Gavin, you've never been able to figure out sweaters, so you really do need those tricks. I'm wearing one and right now. Helps. I'm wearing one right now, folks. And it's a wreck. It's a wreck. <laughs> His head's through both sleeves. I'm still trying to figure it out. Let us know. 
803-563-7669. AT, we have a voicemail. That's what you're telling we me. We got a few voicemails. That's okay. not that's not to say don't call in. So uh since Gavin talked so much earlier, we're gonna we're gonna play one of we're gonna play one of these shorter ones. And it's an old friend who I've missed and I think about all the time every night. I say a prayer for him and I love him. Uh here he is. What's up, Gavin and AT? This is your friendly neighborhood Trader Joe checking in while he's actually visiting South Carolina from the great state of Massachusetts. Uh, just wanted to tell you guys that I miss being down here until I get to a point where I have to go someplace and realize that there's not really anybody wearing masks and nobody really cares about schools down here. But if it makes you feel better, we're having the same problems in places like Massachusetts. Uh, where there's not really any state mandates, but there's nobody really getting in the way of the schools doing whatever they feel like is safe for their students, which after listening to the voicemail I just heard from the teacher who is scared and uh, not stoked in the way things are going, I really hope more people just honestly just don't listen to what the higher authorities are telling you and just do what's right for the kids. Honestly, if there was a mass movement of people just saying we don't care what uh, McMaster and others are saying we're going to require this anyway for the safety of all people, uh, I don't think it could be ignored, to be honest with you. I just want to say hello and tell you that I miss uh, being able to check in on SCE TV uh, easier than I do now. Hope y'all are doing well. Thanks for always putting it out there and hope to continue listening to you guys as things go on. Alright, later. So great to hear from Trader Joe. He sounds like oh. he's doing really well. Oh, doesn't he sound great? Sounds like he's having a great time, huh? He's, yeah, he's trying to big time South Carolina. He's like, we're kind of the same. <laughs> I'm a little sad uh -huh. that he didn't call in with a favorite Lord of the Rings weapon. Hmm. I'm not going to lie. Because okay. I do know that he is a little simpatico with me because his Instagram handle is Radagast, which is the brown wizard. Okay, we're who still doing this, huh? Is in yeah. Mirkwood. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, so okay. Well, <laughs> anyway, uh, Gavin. Another uh, call, perhaps. <laughs> another call, perhaps. <laughs> I, won't, I won't go any farther on. Uh, uh fantasy weapons i promise but gavin there is there is a, a thing we both agree on and that is we love uh scary movies and Ooh. thrillers <laughs> and you brought to my attention something Oof. uh that you it is possible <laughs> now to <laughs> rent yeah, the Buffalo Bill House from Silence oh, of the Lambs. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Yes. We gotta do that one of these days. We, I feel like, I feel like the state should pay for us to do that. I think they could do that. We could, the taxpayers would love to swing that trip for us. I mean, it'd be beneficial. It's very educational. I don't say that. It's, it's very educational. Huge yeah. educational value for that, and our listeners. Would I mean, it's a that. historic home. There's mm -hmm. an old well in the bottom. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, that's history. And we could act out a bunch of different scenes that we know by heart, and uh, you know, just record things. You know, say things in Buffalo Bill's voice. Or, yeah. yeah, all the great stuff we can definitely do. Um, so, yeah, where, is it Pennsylvania? Where is it? Ohio? It's it's definitely in Pennsylvania. Oh, it might be in Ohio. What's the it's, difference? It's, you know, <laughs> Pennsylvania and Hawaii. And oh, Ohio. Although, look at the phone. Our, our switchboard's lighting up right now, oh. folks. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone from the Delaware Valley calling in to yell at us. Um, but uh, I do know that. So I looked it up after you told me. It's in Pennsylvania. I could, Periopolis, yeah, that, that's, of course. It feels right. The it looks the same as it did in that movie. What year did that movie come out? Like nineteen ninety? It right? won the Academy Award. Uh, yeah, it, the house itself won the Academy yeah. Award. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful <laughs> house. Uh, do you know how much it costs a night for the whole house? 
How much? Six ninety five, folks. You're gonna have to call in and pledge, pledge yeah. like you've never pledged before for us. <laughs> <laughs> and make sure you mention the Buffalo Bill House and the South Carolina lead when you pledge. You have to, you have to call in and leave a voicemail in the Buffalo Bill voice <laughs> over and over and over again. Ninety one. Yeah. Ninety one. Um, yeah. Well, funny enough, speaking of moths. <laughs> well, we have to point out that he was a caretaker of moths and all his victims. Well, yeah, if you don't know the moths just into fast forward. So, uh, yeah, Gavin, so, speaking of moths, speaking you have moths. something in common with Buffalo Bill, yeah. right? Yeah. You're a big billhead, right? <laughs> Love that setup. Yes. Always rooting for the evil villain. That's your thing, I right? I mean, Jafar, Scar, they were just conflicted. You know, they just had They're their own just issues. Misunderstood. misunderstood. They're just power hungry. Yeah. But mm-hmm. we're talking about Buffalo Bill. You know, obviously that that the lamb's head moth or whatever it was, uh, skeleton moth. I don't know what it was called. Skeleton uh, moth. We'll go with. Yeah, sure. I I've been on the road for two months every mm, weekend. Mm, yeah, weekends. Uh, you know, like mm-hmm. obviously two weeks dedicated, but like you know, just long weekends. Haven't really been home at the homestead. Kind of just keeping things here as much as I can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so then I, I've been recording in my my study, which is my study. studio. I just changed the name there. It, it, he he used to Studio. he used to record in his boudoir, but now he's in his, his study. well the acoustics. I mean, we had a whole debate about the, the acoustics. By acoustics, if if you, people if you could see him, he's sitting with an inflatable mattress against the wall behind which him. Which I keep have, going. Which I have because a quality soundproofing, but b I had an unexpected house guest this week. Luckily, I got a couple days heads up. So it's Speaking like of oh, unexpected house guests. Gavin. It's like it's like um, house guests let's featuring bring, Let's bring. Let's bring <laughs> Let's bring it back to these moths. That's what I'm saying. This is how it all started. I had to clean yeah. out my study studio. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'm doing it. I'm like, you know, I worked out of here all year last year. This is my studio legit. Like, we were in here. Mm-hmm. I was always keeping an eye on things. The plants live in here. It's my little green room. It's a green, greenhouse. It's a wonderful spot. I have my you rugs in here. You say it's an ecosystem, right? And we were both talking about rugs, and we both love rugs because they're so good. I have a rug in every room, and I smuggled one back. Oh, I didn't smuggle it back, but they I bought one when I was in Istanbul in 2015. Nice little, like, I don't know, like a two-by-four two, two by four rug. Nothing big, mm-hmm. but just a little something. And they folded it up tight, handmade, you know, hand-dyed, all that vegetable dye. It was really nice. Made in Istanbul. And I was like, cool. Let me bring this home. They stuffed it in my bag, and I brought it home. It's been sitting in my study Underneath, like my flower—not my flower, but my, my plant area over here—I mm-hmm. have not paid it any mind for several years. It meant a lot to you, yeah. Until, yeah, you know, I was like, oh, you know, you buy it, but it's like, oh, it's just there. I mean, you don't want people to step on it. You don't want to get like too messed mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm, fast mm-hmm. forward to now, when it did get messed up, Six not years by later. me, but by some moths that have not s- that decided to move into my home when I was out. You discovered uh, a moth infestation. No, it wasn't like I, I would walked say in that and I was covered in moths. Let's not let's I, clarify this. It wasn't I would, Mothman. I would, I, in my head, Gavin, you go into a fugue state, multiple personalities, okay. and have a Buffalo Bill personality, and you raise moths. This could also be true, not proven. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so I'm moving things around. I'm vacuuming, decided. and I'm like, what in the world? And so I'm mm-hmm. moving that around. I'm, I'm knocking what? over the plants. The Scott Fitzgerald's I'm going on I'm knocking plants over. <laughs> Dirt's going everywhere. I'm doing this on my lunch break, by the way. And it's just mm-hmm. a very difficult state. So I ended up just kind of getting rid of the rug, the little baby rug. because Was it eaten up? Moth like bit There's a good section that had been eaten up. I mean, I love that I could provide this you know, nutritious meal for these baby moths. But mm-hmm. as long as they're not eating my cashmere which i need to go inspect which i i'm kind of worried that they've you're gonna have to move those all into your cedar closet bro yeah or in the second house 
Yeah, the pool house. <laughs> uh, yeah, or the one up in the uh, up north. <laughs> oh, in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, your mountain house. Yeah, I but gotcha, you know, I gotcha. oh, it's just it's just such a pain sometimes. <laughs> the cedar. Well, everyone so, listening. So yeah, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> go ahead, call in, give him give him the number, but call in and let us know which serial killer you're the most like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or any Fictional recent or otherwise, <laughs> or any recent uh, infestations that you've experienced. Yeah, we want to hear about it all. Or any travels you've been a part of. Maybe. A little bit lighter note there 803-563-7169 thanks for listening folks we know we're not the number one podcast in america right now but we're number one in your hearts hmm. and in production way value. to close way to <laughs> close. production value yeah it's the price inflatable you can mattresses. hear that mattress baby it makes a difference and as always you can show us your appreciation by leaving us a review on itunes or leaving that voicemail 803-563-7169 you can stay up to date with the latest news on scetv.org and south carolina public radio.org and don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. No, it's good. I'm not lying to you. I mean, it's it's good. <laughs> You're doing the Roger Rabbit from like Coup Frame Roger. No, I swear. Uh, I swear. <laughs> Please, Eddie, hide me. Please. Oh, that milk output.